Please would you turn in your Bibles to page 967 to the passage Karina read for us. We're continuing a series in Matthew's Gospel. And we're in Matthew chapter 4. Page 967, Matthew chapter 4. The Bible's story about human beings begins in a garden, famously. It begins in paradise. It begins in God's garden. And when we look at those opening chapters and see what's happening there, we get a glimpse of God's vision for human beings. And it's a wonderful vision. It's an extraordinary vision of men and women who are made in the image of God to represent God and then the future that he has for us. But there is a sense in which, in the end, that story that begins in a garden is about loss. It's about the loss of paradise. It's about the loss of that garden. It's about the loss of human hope for the present and for the future. It is the beginning of despair. It is the beginning of the world that we know. The world that is so amazing and wonderful and yet is so fatally shot through with suffering and injustice and violence and hopelessness and death. So, what's the story about? That story way back at the beginning of the Bible. Why is it there? And what's it got to do with you and me? I want to explore two ideas with you this morning. The first is this, that the course of human history is in reality the record of human beings trying to come to terms with what went on in the garden. To try to mitigate the effects of Genesis 3, which is where we read about it, or trying to create our own paradise. There have been many attempts to do that. Or at the very least, to make the world a better place. And so Genesis 3, that story of the loss of paradise, explains why the world is where it is today. And why human experience is what it is. So that's the first thing I want to explore this morning. The second one is this. What's going on in the garden has implications for you and for me. There is an individual dimension to this. It is about your life, your decisions, and decisions that we can't avoid, and decisions that we make that will determine our future. So this isn't just back then. This isn't just theoretical. This is about your life and mine. And it hangs on what we're going to look at this morning. So what was really going on in the garden and why is it important to us? 
The answer to what's really going on in the garden is here in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4 explains what was really going on in Genesis 3 and why that was such a defining moment. Before we get into this, let me just set you the scene. When you read Matthew's Gospel, and have been looking at it now for a couple of weeks, um, do you notice how strikingly familiar it is? I mean, it's the story of Jesus, but you've heard it before, haven't you? And you say, how can we have heard it before? Because Jesus has only just turned up. This is the Gospels. Everything before that is Old Testament. So how can we have read the story of Jesus before we get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Well, if you've read the Old Testament, you've read the story of Jesus already. Have you got that? If you've read the Old Testament, if you know the Old Testament, you have already read the story of Jesus. Let's take the flight into Egypt that we looked at last week. In, back in uh, chapter, or maybe the week before, I can't remember. Week before, week one. In chapter 2 and verse 13, the angel comes to Joseph and says, it's dangerous in Israel, so flee to Egypt for asylum. Where have you read that before? where an anointed king has to flee because of an unstable king, paranoid about his power, who wants to execute anybody who stands in his way, and particularly the anointed king, God's chosen king. Where have you read that before? Don't shout it out. Just have a think about it. If you know your Old Testaments, you know where you've heard that before, don't you? It's David. David is God's anointed king, but Saul is on the throne. And Saul wants to king kill David, so what does David do? He flees. Or take the destination, Egypt. They go finding sanctuary in Egypt. Have you heard that before? Well, if you know your Old Testaments, you've heard that before, haven't you? Abraham, because of a famine in the land, goes to Egypt. But ultimately, and most defining of all, the descendants of Abraham go to Egypt because there's a famine in the land and they find asylum in Egypt. David... And the people of Israel, the descendants of David, of Abraham, going into Egypt to find asylum. You see, you've heard it before, haven't you? And do you remember how Matthew starts off about Jesus? Have a look at chapter 1 and verse 1. He is son of David, son of Abraham. Ding! And where have you heard about God calling out his people, described as his son, the people of Israel, as my son, says God. Where have you read before about God saying, calling his son out of Egypt? Ding! It's called the Exodus, isn't it? And in case you don't get it, 
Matthew tells us, doesn't he? And so there you have it in verse 15 of chapter 2. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt have I called my son. It's a quotation from Hosea. Hosea is about Israel, but Matthew says actually it's now being played out by Jesus. You see, you've already read the story of Jesus if you've read the Old Testament. And why have you heard about God's people, God's son? Where else have you read about God's son going through water to be able to begin, to start to begin the purpose God has for them? It's the Red Sea, isn't it? They go from Egypt. They are rescued through the sea to begin the task that God has for them. And so here you have Jesus, God's Son, coming through the waters of baptism to begin his task as my beloved Son. Do you remember the words of the baptism? This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased, who is Son of David and Son of Abraham. Do you see, if you understand the Old Testament, you've already read the story of Jesus. Because what Jesus is doing is, if you like, reliving the story of Israel, but he's also rewriting as as he goes through it. Have you got that? He is fulfilling what Israel should have been. He's rewriting the story of Israel, in fact, of humanity. So what's going on in Matthew 4? At the baptism that we've just had at the end of chapter 3, This is the start of Jesus' ministry. It's where he begins to put into effect his role as son of David and son of Abraham. And what's the first thing that God has for him? Have a look at chapter 4 and verse 1. The first task that God has for him. Notice the language. He was led by the Spirit, which does not mean he has this feeling. I feel led to go into the wilderness. Or a hunch. It is that God drives him by his Spirit into the wilderness. This is God's doing. The first task for Jesus the Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, is to go into the wilderness so that, well, look at the text, verse 1, he can engage with Satan. The first task that God has for his son, my beloved son, son of David, son of Abraham, is to engage with Satan. Why is this the first thing? Well, ask yourself the question. When you think about the example of temptation, of a temptation of a human being that comes externally, where there's something more to it than the ordinary temptations that go on in life, Where'd you go if you know your Old Testaments? Rhetorical question. 
think about it, where do you go? You go to Genesis 3, don't you? You go back to the garden. And what we have here in Matthew 4 is Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham, God's son, doing a rerun of Genesis 3. He's doing a rerun of what happened in the garden in Genesis 3, except there are some major differences. Are you with me? Let's have a look at the distant differences. Genesis 3, read it yourself later if you're not familiar with it. The temptation in Genesis 3 takes place in paradise, in this garden of God. Here, Jesus is in the wilderness. Genesis 3, the garden is a place of abundance. There's lots of food. There is plenty. Here, Jesus has been fasting, do you notice, for 40 days, preparing for the encounter with Satan. And he's famished. In Genesis 3, the encounter is with a creature, a serpent, over whom human beings have authority. God gives authority to human beings over every creature. That includes the serpent in Genesis 3. But here the encounter is with the devil, with Satan. In Genesis 3, human beings are morally and spiritually untarnished. Their experience is all positive. Genesis 3 says... They were naked and unashamed. Actually, it's in Genesis 2. But they were naked and unashamed. They lived in a world which was good and their experiences were good. There was a kind of moral innocence about them. Untarnished. But what about here in Matthew 4? Do you remember how Matthew starts off? It starts off with the genealogy. Which we skip, don't we? But if you read that genealogy, it is a list of moral and spiritual failures, examples of moral and spiritual failure. That's the background that Jesus comes from. Those are his ancestors. That's what he's inherited. Do you see how different that is from the garden? And what about his personal experience? Well, before he's very old at all, when he's just a baby, he experiences exile, injustice, violence. Jesus comes from a background that's characterized both by moral and spiritual bankruptcy. Do you remember in chapter 3 where the Sadducees, the religious authorities, and the Pharisees, the best of the bunch, religiously speaking, when they come to see what John is doing, he launches into this scathing attack. Brood of vipers who's warned you to flee from the coming wrath. You are hypocrites, he says. That's the background that Jesus comes from. Those contrasts are hugely important. Let me tell you why. They're hugely important because what they demonstrate is the outgoing, outworking of what was going on in Genesis 3. This is where Genesis 3 ends up. This is the kind of world that you end up with as a result of what was going on in Genesis 3. And this is why the event of Genesis 3 has shaped both the world in which Jesus was born and the world in which we live. So what you've got is from garden to wilderness, from a creature to Satan, from innocence to moral and spiritual bankruptcy. 
Well, what was going on in the garden that's now repeated in the wilderness? Well, they're the same issues except that they are massively intensified. Let's have a look at them. Number one. Number one is the truth issue. Where does truth lie and who will you trust? Whose word will you trust? Verse 2 of chapter 4. The tempter came to him, that's Jesus, and said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. What's this about? Well, the key to the understanding lies both in Genesis 3 and in Jesus' response. You remember in Genesis 3, let me tell you what happens in Genesis 3. Initially to the woman, but the man gets involved as well. It's both of them. The serpent says in Genesis 3, did God really say that you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? So you remember, God says to the man and the woman, you can eat from any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan says, sorry, the serpent says in Genesis 3, did God really say that you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? And he then goes on to say, what God has said isn't true. Because God has said, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And Satan says, you will not certainly die. God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What the serpent in Genesis 3 is questioning is the trustworthiness of God. God doesn't tell you the whole truth. You can't trust him. He has a different agenda from human beings other than what is entirely good. He does not want what's best for them. And so it raises the question. There it is in Genesis 3. Who will you trust? Are you going to trust God? Or are you going to trust the serpent? That's exactly the same issue as in Matthew 4. At the end of um, chapter 3, we have the baptism. Have a look at it. Just at the end of chapter 3. You need to look at it in your Bibles. Make sure I'm getting this right. Verse 17 of chapter 3. Get into the text. Here's the voice of God. Jesus is baptized. The Spirit descends. And then God speaks. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. That sounds good, doesn't it? You remember all the Old Testament background about my Son? And He's pleased, so comforting and reassuring. Where's Jesus now? What's God done with Him as His Son? He sends Him into the desert, into the wilderness, in order to engage with Satan. Why is he here in the wilderness if he's God's son, son of David, son of Abraham? Why is he in this place? Why has God put him here? Can God be trusted is the issue. God says, you're my son. But does he really want you to be the son? 
What kind of son is that? Can you trust him? So have a look at Jesus' response in verse 4. Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus does what Adam and Eve should have done in the garden, but didn't do. He says, I trust him. He has spoken. And so I will trust his word. Truth lies with God, is what he's saying. And that has nothing to do with the circumstances. If God says it, it's true. Truth issue. Second one. Identity. Who am I? Where do I look for my identity? Look at the devil's temptation in verse 5. The devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, had him stand at the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not dash your foot, strike your foot against a stone. Once again, this is a rerun of Genesis 3. See, in Genesis 3, the backdrop to that is Genesis 1. And Genesis 1 says God made human beings in his image. How privileged is that? And then he places the man and then the woman in the garden. This amazing task. But what the serpent in Genesis 3 suggests is you are capable of so much more. You can be so much more than just an image of God, a representative of God, so much more than what God is saying about you. You can be like God. It's the same issue in Matthew 4. God has said to Jesus, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. What does sonship look like though? What is the kind of sonship that the Father has for the Son, that God has for Jesus? Again, Jesus does what Adam and Eve should have done in the garden. Do you remember? Jesus is rewriting the story. It's a recapitulation. It is going back, and Jesus is rewriting his story. Verse 7, Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put your, the Lord your God to the test. In other words, what God has said and what he decides about my sonship is what it is. And if he says that means going into the wilderness and engaging with you, Satan, then I accept that. He defines my identity. My identity is to be found in who God says I am. So the truth issue, the identity issue, and then the power issue. Where does power lie? How can we achieve the desires of our hearts? That's a great question, isn't it? How can you get what you most desire? How can we bring about a world that we would like? This is what this third issue is about, and really it's the climax of the three temptations. 
as it was in Genesis 3. Verse 8 of chapter, Matthew chapter 4, again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Now remember what we've had is the truth issue, Genesis 3, Matthew 4. We've had the identity issue. God is enough in terms of defining identity. And then here's the climax, which is about power. Now, if you go back to Genesis 3, the serpent says this. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. Have you got that? You will be like God. That is that they will have access to power over everything. The power to decide what they want So long as they eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God has said they mustn't eat, if they do that, they will be godlike in their power. They will be gods themselves. Isn't that enticing? Wouldn't you like to have the ability, the freedom, to do whatever you desire? I know some of you, are terribly self-aware and know that wouldn't be a good thing. But just humor me. Wouldn't you like to be able to change Australia to make it a better place? Wouldn't you like to be able to do something about what's going on with ISIS? Wouldn't you like to do something about the profound inequalities there are in our system? Of course we would. You will be like God. But there's a catch. Do you notice the catch? If they want this kind of power, the serpent says, they're going to have to trust the serpent. (laughs) That's the catch. Acknowledge what he's saying. Acknowledge his word, his wisdom, over against God's word and God's wisdom. That's the catch. If you want the power... You've got to trust me. Now back to Matthew 4. And this gives us the full implications of what was going on in Genesis 3. Look at the devil's words. He says, I will give you power. Notice the language in chapter 4. Notice the language. I will give you, in verse 9, I will give you this. Look at what comes next. If you worship me. And then look at Jesus' reply in verse 10. Away from me, Satan, for it's written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Question. If the temptation is about power, why are both Satan and Jesus talking about worship? Good question, Graham. So pleased you asked that. If it's about power, why does Jesus talk about worship? Why does Satan talk about worship? The reason is because worship is not what we often think it is. Worship is not primarily what we do on Sunday mornings. What we do is part of worship, but it isn't the heart of worship. 
Worship is not primarily about religious ceremonies. The Pharisees were really, really good at religious ceremonies and observances. But they weren't worshipping. Worship isn't primarily about being able to say the creed, even with conviction. The heart of worship is allegiance. It's who you serve. It is about what or who you will give your life to. So look at Jesus' reply. It is written, and he's quoting from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy. It is written, worship the Lord your God. But then notice how the quotation goes on, and serve him only. That second line explains the first line. What's worship? It's to serve God. It's to give your allegiance to God. Worship is about who you serve. It's about what or who you give your life to. So, if you think that earning lots of money by getting a good job and working really hard is going to give you the power to bring about the kind of life that you want, then that's what you'll tend to worship. If you think that sex, having a wonderful sex life, will give you the life of your dreams, then you'll tend to worship sex, and so on. Worship is about who or what you give your allegiance to. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve make a fatal choice, which is to worship the creature, the serpent, rather than the creator. Those of you who know your New Testaments, does that sound familiar? Romans, worship the creature rather than the creator. That's what's going on in Genesis 3. And where does that lead? What happened in Genesis 3? Well, not to a garden, not to paradise, but to a wasteland, to the kind of world that Jesus was born into of injustice and violence that's morally and spiritually corrupt, to the kind of world that we're in. Notice the setting of Jesus' temptations. He's in the wilderness. It's a kind of picture of where Genesis 3 leads to, not paradise, but the wilderness. And it leads not to becoming God, but to a loss of identity, human beings made in the image of God who no longer look and behave like the image of God, who are struggling with life at odds with each other, at odds with nature, and at odds with God. And the condition of Jesus at the end of the 40 days fasting, in a sense, epitomizes that. And not either to God-like freedom, but to slavery. In Genesis 3, they listen to the creature and worship the creature rather than the, creation, uh, the creature rather than the creator, and the result isn't freedom. It isn't an increase in human power. Have a look at Matthew chapter 4. Notice what Satan says in verse 8. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And then he says, all this I will give to you. The outworking of Genesis 3 is that the ruling power of the world is Satan, not human beings. 
That's where it leads. Not to freedom, but to slavery. And so back in Genesis 3, we find at the end of that that Adam and Eve lose paradise and they emerge from the garden into a new world, a very different world, a world that's far bleaker than they could ever have imagined in their nightmares if they'd had nightmares in the garden, to a world of disorder. But here in chapter 4, not in a garden, but in the wilderness, a second human being who's son of David, son of Abraham, son of God, emerges victorious from the encounter with Satan. Do you see it's a rewriting of Genesis 3? But not without cost to Jesus. Have a look at verse 11. Verse 11. Then the devil left him, and angels came and ministered to him. How many times have you read that and just skipped over it? It's the Bible. The Bible says strange things, doesn't it? It throws in stuff. You know, Matthew was having a spiritual moment, throwing the angels. Why do you think the angels came to minister to him? Because he's physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted. That's why. The encounter with Satan, the rewriting of Genesis 3, comes at great cost to Jesus. But he wins the encounter. And so can begin a new era for human beings. Now, I said at the beginning I wanted to look at two things. We've looked at one. I want to finish off briefly with the second one. Genesis 3 and then the rewriting, in the, the reconfiguring of that in Matthew 4 explains the world where it, as it is and the new era that's breaking out in Jesus. But there are also direct personal implications for every single one of us. Now, you're not Jesus, and I'm not Jesus, and we're not in the desert being tempted by Satan. But these three issues face every single one of us, and we're all answering these issues. The question is, are we answering them rightly? Number one, who will you trust? Where does truth lie for you? Is it in human knowledge? Is it in science? Or do you trust who, what God says? And truth centers on Jesus. So do you trust Jesus' word to us? He's the one who's come to rescue us, to save his people, you remember. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He's bringing in a new era, a new kingdom. Next week we'll see that he calls people to respond to him. Do you trust him? Where do you find truth? Number two, who are you? Where do you find your identity? Where do you look for that? Do you find it in Christ, in relationship with him? In the one who has come for us to act for us, who is God present amongst us. To the one who, if we will give our lives to him, says, you now belong. God is your father. He loves you and he loves you as much as he loves me. 
That is who you are. You are not defined primarily by anything else. That is how you're defined. By who you are in Jesus. That's what God says. Where do you look for truth? Where do you look for your identity? And finally, who or what are you worshipping? Remember, worship is primarily who you give your allegiance to. Money? Relationships? Oh, God. Which means worshiping Jesus. You give your life to Jesus. You give your allegiance to Him, the one who is son of David, son of Abraham, Emmanuel, God with us, God's Son. Matthew 4 explains what was really going on in the garden. It shows us how tragic, desperate that incident was in Genesis 3. But Jesus has rewritten the story for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Father, we're just staggered the more we find out about him, how amazing he is. Father, we pray that we might be people who trust you, find truth in you, in your word to us, that we find our identity in who we are in Christ and that our worship is worship of him. In whose name we pray. Amen.